Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word. Story time, episode 125. Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins coming to you from indoor, where the test match is over. And we're in an unusual situation here because we're in a very nice hotel that we can't afford to stay in. And in fact, none of us are staying in. (laughs) And somehow we've got in here and nobody's asked us any questions. So we're sitting next to their pool and we're going to record a story time episode. And we happen by coincidence to have Bharat Sundarason sitting here, Daniel Norcross sitting here, neither of whom were asked to prepare answers for this show, but who will probably contribute at some point. Ready in a box, <laughs> off to one side as well, ready to contribute, uh, and friend of the show, Matthew Clemo. So everybody's decided to club in. Adam and I were going to sit in the corner and record this, but everybody said, no, let's all record story time together. So that is what we're going to do today, Adam. Yes, it is. So the sun is just setting behind us. We're filming this as well. If you want to watch the absurdity on YouTube, you should do so. The enormous Phoenix Citadel Mall is over the back there. It should have yep. a bridge or a tunnel accessing it, but not to be. It's going to be a relatively short episode we've got a few answers each we're not going to do revisits today that's going to come i i, I think given that we have barrett sitting here and daniel sitting here maybe a long episode it, yes. it will probably not be a short episode. i guess my point is it's not going to be a revisit special that i may or may not have promised last week that's coming it's a it's that's a loose coming. promise that's coming it's a loose it's, it's like a pony for christmas kind exactly. of exactly we're yeah. not saying which christmas one of the Christmases, <laughs> at least until such time as you no longer want a pony, right? But this is the, this is the uh, luxury we're afforded with a test match finishing in two and a half days mm-hmm. that we have 
the freedom to record this in this rather casual setting. So yeah. we'll, we'll embrace it. Well, yeah, like, why not lean in? There's a building behind us with a large sign on the roof that just says, Boy, B-O-I, I don't know what that's about. This particular hotel, I mean, it looks like a prison when you drive up. It's this weird concrete block that's just sitting in the middle of a paddock somewhere, but here we are. Well, we've got a bouncer if we need one as well. Matthew Hayden's been in and out a number of times wearing a tank top. He's got the biggest arms I think I've ever seen in my life, really? so uh, he would be a suitable prison guard. Is he still wearing the pink hat off no, off duty? No, no, not that I've seen. Yeah, okay. he's, as, as Clemo puts the phone in front of me, a dead ringer for Bill Goldberg, the, uh, the WCW wrestler. Brat loves that as well, with the spear. I know, the jackhammer. The jackhammer. I heard he had a massage at 5pm, maybe oh, that's we, why you would have seen him. We, we both um, had that pay-per-view, didn't we? Uh, which was the Halloween, Halloween Havoc, Havoc yeah. 98, where Goldberg, Goldberg DDP, DDP yeah. uh, mate, oh, epic. Because yeah. he, he, he executes the diamond cutter, he and does. it's the first time that that doesn't finish the bout. Goldberg somehow gets up from it. And lifts him and like puts him in the jackhammer. And also, that's <laughs> the show, if you bought the pay-per-view, where they went overtime and it was lost. So people actually in the US didn't watch the finish of oh. That was the beginning of the end for the WCW. There you go, wrestling history on the way through. <laughs> when you say Goldberg, I just think of Bobcat Goldthwait in Police Academy. That's that's just a different... Or, or in Mighty Ducks, yeah. Goldberg! Goldberg, yeah, getting tied into the yeah. into the frames and all the rest of it. We, we promised a Mighty Ducks episode at one point, which hasn't happened yet. I wanted, to get, I wanted to get Dave from yeah. Twitter on to talk us through Mark the history. Mark Latham, Dave. Of Mark Latham, Dave, the history of mm. the Mighty Ducks. Um, Jenny, Jenny or Microwave Jenny? Jenny or Microwave <laughs> Dave, Dave or Mark Latham, Dave. Hi, Dave. <laughs> right, okay. Shall we, shall we begin? I mean, we have sure. a fair bit of stuff to get through. Uh, this is story time. And the way the story 125. Works, 125. You get a special cap for that if you play for England. <laughs> <laughs> Specially embroidered. Well, Norcross can present it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Joe Root, here's your 125th cap. I'm sure you'll treasure it. Put it right next to the 75 cap. You get a special cap for 25. When Rory Burns got his 25th cap, averaging about 25, <laughs> there was an enormous ceremony in which everyone was supposed to be so proud. Play 25 games now. Oh, the honour. Forget 125, it's fucking preposterous. <laughs> 25, one for every ball that he edged that didn't go to hand in Edgebaston 2019. Let's not go there again. Oh, my <laughs> goodness me. Yeah, so I was talking about Jack Leach getting his from... James Anderson presented it to him. What an insult. James Anderson, you played 490 <laughs> test matches. Present a cap to someone who's played 25. You've done that since June. Yeah. <laughs> With the amount of test cricket England play. <laughs> right. We're going to start, and we're going to start with a game called Nerd Pledge. And the way that Nerd Pledge Can't works... Can't yell that at the Park Hotel. You probably no. shouldn't, because I don't want to get kicked out of here halfway through recording a show. They've been very uh, gracious to look after us, even though they shouldn't, and we have no They've right to They've given us Wi-Fi. Yep. They've found PowerPoints yep. for us. They, they've done all sorts, yep. even though, as you say, we're not staying here. Yeah, no. We're, um, we're, just, we're just bluffing, basically. This reminds me of the day when, uh, in the 2018 Women's World Cup, it was a T20 World Cup in the Caribbean, Henry Moran and I went along to do a press event in the morning, I think it was with Nat Siver, the England team. They were staying at the Posh Resort, and we weren't. Like we were, I don't know where we were staying. And yeah, that was at about. <laughs> you 10 never, in, we never are. That's right. That was at about ten in the morning. Uh, and needless to say, oh no, not needless to say. Um, how it sequenced was that Catherine Brunt, who had gone home early due to having a back complaint, had a room which was being unused and thus had a room number. We got wind of the room number and used that to put rum punches on all day. There's some fairly incriminating photographs of Henry and me um, early in the day sitting on each other's laps. Then about seven hours later, maybe 12 hours later, I couldn't get back to my place. So not for the first time, not for the last time, just bunked in with him, shirts off <laughs> before we got the photo hopping into bed. And the other thing I remember from that night was 
the taxi that we were trying I to get. you sending me pictures yeah. of what was happening that day. We were just <laughs> keeping me updated. We were trying to get a taxi. It was Victorian election night 2018, so I'm trying to keep abreast of what's going on. And we get a cab from the casino, or at least we thought we were getting a cab from the casino in St John to the place. And a woman came out to drive us. She wasn't a taxi driver. And all through that tour, our theme song was Think Twice by Celine Dion, because that's Lottie Edwards' favourite song of all time. So Henry and I started singing this in the back of the car, and our driver had the most glorious lungs on her. She just belted it out with us, got us back to the accommodation, and, well, maybe it set the tone for us spending the night together, Henry and me. Is this why the really lovely ICC media manager, whose name I will leave out, that both of you found very, very charming. Oh, she thought, won't mind you saying. This was Sipakazi when she was running the South Africa. Is this why Sipakazi <laughs> thought you two were a couple? Yeah, well, she took the photo of Henry sitting on my lap, I think. That might have something to do with it. But this is not even our first illegal pool recording for the day, Adam. And there were two, <laughs> yes. there were two topless men there as well. Strangely, there we are talking about the pitch rating. There's a topless Chris Broad walking past <laughs> us who had given that pitch rating. And there was a topless Richard Kettleborough there as well. And Richard Kettleborough works nothing out. nothing to hide. Chris Broad, he's, I'll take the shirt off when I give the rating. That's how little I have he to actually, hide. He actually walked into shot as well. And we just had to continue the conversation. We, we share your opinion. Opinion on the pitch at indoor and big dick Kettlebrough got the guns out got the chest out tanned to perfection they watched the show they go good job boys they gave us a little standing ovation at the end <laughs> and while the security staff were there like you two fuck off the security guard and then the manager and uh, two security guards they're all in the I can see them standing behind us like the security guards to the back Topless ICC match officials to the right. It was quite the recording. <laughs> Stuck in the middle with you. <laughs> <laughs> right then. No pledge. It's a game that we play with people on the internet. People who want to fund this program to help us do extremely lunatic things like this. What they do is they send us contributions financially, but the amount that they send is not a normal amount. It's a number and it relates to cricket in some way, and we have to work out what the number means. For instance, Angus Digby, you are first cap off the rank in indoor. Your number is $3.74 in Australian dollary dues, and that means that 374 is the number. You can interpret it any way you want, Adam Collins. You can ditch the decimal point, you can shift it around, you could swap the numbers back and forth if you want. You've got 374, what have you done with uh, it? What I can also do is ask DC to play the music. Yes, we're going to start off with a dusty old bastard. It's been a few weeks, I reckon, Jeff, since one of these. And I did mm -hmm. fear, I don't know, six months ago that we might be running out of numbers. Um, the criteria has shifted. It's no longer just interwar England cricketers that have played a couple of test matches. Now it, it has broadened out. It's pretty much anyone who we don't immediately recognise the name of and yeah. who they haven't played a lot of test cricket. And this fella is a belter of a story. I'm so glad this number came up. So, cap 374 for England. Bearing in mind that it's Angus... It's always England, right? They've just got more players to choose from. It was anybody. just a looser time. Their selection policies, there's no the, cross-jumps the, the, in. The, yeah, it's, it's, it's not they've got more players to choose from. It's just that they choose more players. That's <laughs> it. They've got the same number. They've actually, they've got far fewer players to choose from, from than India and probably Australia. It's just that any old Burke who's got 100 in a county game in the middle of July <laughs> while they've been absolutely dicked by whichever touring teams come gets a go. <laughs> Well, this isn't quite that. And I should note, by the way, that Angus pledged in AUD, so this won't be right, but I don't mind. A number like this needs to be taken full advantage of. 3741 Test Wonder by the name of Charles Palmer. Mm. Might be related to uh, Daniel's great-great-grandmother, Fanny Trimmer, who knows. Uh, and quite the dusty old bastard as well. A wild career. 
and an extraordinary life in the game. Born just after World War I in 1919, he was from the Midlands and went to Birmingham University. Now, he was an amateur. It was unusual to be declared an amateur if you didn't go to an Oxbridge or Oxbridge or another uh, highfalutin yeah. university. If, if you, you went to Birmingham a Uni. Posh, C asterisk person. Yeah, that's right. So it does, you know, it does strike you as unusual when you read through and see that he went to Birmingham University. But as I later learnt, this is partly because the MCC had a policy at the time of broadening out their definition of amateur. So that, that he was suited right. by the times, if you like. They wanted okay. to Much sort like of lose the, the stigma. Over the last twenty years. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they wanted to. <laughs> They wanted to. They wanted to. Um, uh, uh, I'm going to compose myself here. Broaden out the types of people who were declaring as amateur and playing otherwise professional cricket. This is before the Gonzo era of cricket. <laughs> yes. I'm, anything uh, I say here. Thompson reference. Carry on. Yeah. Anything I say here will incriminate me, so yeah. I won't say anything at all. Uh, so just before the war, 1938-1939, he got his first opportunities playing as a 19-20-year-old for Worcestershire. A few tons, broadly on the radar, but that's that. Of course, the war misses six seasons. He did serve, albeit on the home front, working on anti-aircraft battery in Sussex. Right. But after the war, he actually went into teaching, you know, in that classic amateur way, played a bit, sometimes didn't play. You know, mm. it could have gone either way for him, acknowledging that by this stage he's yep. deep into his 20s. Probably really good at coits. Exactly, like exactly. Yeah. Then 1948 rolls around and the Invincibles rock up, the touring Australians. And in one session, in a morning session... Oh, apparently. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, okay. well, well, think about how good India are. They've lost three test matches in India since 2012. Yeah, and everybody's losing their shit because they lost one this week. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. going around um, war-ravaged, ration-riddled England and not losing a, a fixture probably isn't quite as impressive as that. I'll probably get abusive comments, but that's just my sense of the thing. So he makes 85 in a morning um, when playing for Worcestershire, taking on Keith Miller, Ray Lindwall. So, you know, high-quality attack, and that kind of gets him on the radar again. Oh, and by the way, on the back of that, they take him as an amateur to South Africa in 1948-49, and he doesn't play a test match. He's there for the entire winter and had the, allegedly the time of his life. Right. Eccentric, little fella, five foot seven, loved partying, just enjoyed himself over there. No real pressure, mm. no real obligation. Again, yep. that kind of quintessential amateur who's not there to make up the numbers necessarily, but no real expectation that he was going to play. The Andrew WK of the touring team. That's right. He's there to party hard. Uh, 1950 year after that he moves to Leicestershire to become not only the captain but the secretary of the club so he's got a sort of paid role at Leicestershire okay yeah that's uh, I'm an amateur I just happen to have a job that the club at gave the club. me where they will pay me a living and also I will play cricket and had a broader responsibility as well he organized the social activities yep. um, he organized the football pools uh, he organized fundraising chicken dinners so you know he was this guy winner, who, winner. Who, who was known for having skills at administrative tasks mm. as well as captaining the club playing throughout the season. So this is 1950. Consistent run maker. Then in 1952 has his like breakout season. I guess by then he's in his early 30s, 32, 33. Makes over 2,000 runs and makes a serious century at Lords for the players against the gents. Make that the gents against the players. He, of course. Um, let me get that right. So he has this um, performance that again gets him on the radar having been overseas with England a couple of years prior with the MCC. 1953, Leicestershire reached the top of the county championship for the first time in the club's history. They don't stay on top, they finish third, but it's a great campaign for them. Mm -hmm. And that's enough for 
Head Sounds the, like a great night. Don't say on top, finish third. That's right. <laughs> yes. Better than finishing first. Uh, 1953-54, they're on their way to the Caribbean for, for what becomes the infamous Len Hutton-led tour of the West Indies. Now, Thank God it wasn't a Wally Hammond-led Charles, Well, it may have been for Charles yeah. in the first instance because he thought he was going for a similar jolly. Right. He thought he's going over there and... Because the West Indies weren't willing to pay for a manager to go. Mm. They claimed he was their 16th player. In reality, he was going as their manager. He was seen to have done such a great job at Leicestershire, that, and they'd you know, done well in 1953. Right. He was going to literally make up the numbers according to West Indies, but really mm. he was there to be the one off-field administrator and keep things on track in a tour a long way from home. Now... It didn't play out that way. Uh, as we know from the Who Only Cricket No book by David Woodhouse, which we read and talked about oh, yes. last year on okay. the podcast. This tour. This was a tour of you know, racism and riots and threats and, and violence, the works. I mean, a diplomatic debacle. Um, diplomatic and, immunity, Mr. Murtaugh. And, and our guy, Charles Palmer, is notionally meant to be looking after this thing, yep. acknowledging that he's, you know, mad as a cut snake by all reports. Organised, but bonkers. And... As I say, he's the 16th player. Then before the second test match at Barbados, Len Hutton goes, no, no, I want to pick him. I want him to play. Hadn't picked up a Get bat. Get up here, I want to pick him. Hadn't picked up a bat in three weeks and walked out in a test match at Barbados against the West <laughs> Indies to play. What became his one and only test match wearing cap, well, not that they knew it was cap 374. That's a retrospective oh. thing, but he was the 374th test cricketer. So they've just randomly picked the tour manager and said you're better than any of the players we've had so far yeah well it wasn't it was sort of partly that but it was actually more that the tour was so sour and also the mcc you remember that time that lenhart was sent as a as a professional captain and of course there's if you send a professional the whole thing could go horribly wrong you've got to send some dusty old bastard to make sure that everything's kept in order yes i mean the logic of that is extremely difficult for modern ears to fathom so you know a cigar smoking pisshead is more likely to ensure exactly. that, the, that the tour goes well than a hardened professional because they couldn't trust Len Hutton to look after these like they have these young fiery guys had like Fred Truman in that side yep and Brian Statham was like carrying an injury and it was like it was getting sort of worse and things were getting fractured off the field there was in Guyana there was an independence movement and there have been perceptions of racism and this that the other so you bring in the knob to try to, it's like the, the knee-jerk reaction of the English authorities is if things are getting a bit awkward, bring in the lovely knob. Now, he's a lovely guy, lovely guy, but, you know... Jolly old chap. Yeah, Good old slightly, boy. Slightly unequal to the task of massive geopolitical change <laughs> that was taking place in front of his Heard the analysis of Jim Swanton, who said as, said as much of Palmer after the tour. But, but it's, it's basically what they still do, which is let, let's elect someone with the title Baroness in front of their name to be a cabinet minister or whatever. Like, okay. let's, let's just let the posh toffs run the country because, obviously, with their incredibly rich life experience of having lots of money when they're born... And they're having to eat and, to have it, yes. then they know how to manage things and how well, to run a country. Well, you know, right. so this guy, so this guy, as Louis Cameron joins us, we're going to have a seventh person to this recording in a moment. Louis Cameron, who's been working with us on SCN, journeyforcricket.com.au, he's going to sit next to Brettig in a box. So he slots in at number six. Hutton's, of course, opening. All-time great in Dennis Compton. Uh, Tom Graveney, one of the most gifted cricketers of his generation. They're all in the top five, mm -hmm. and our man, Charles Palmer, comes in at number six. To be fair, he gets a start in the first test, makes 22, misses out, makes a duck in the second innings. They lose by 181 runs, and that's the end of his involvement in the tour from a playing perspective, but as we know, the fallout is considerable. He goes home to 
Leicestershire mm-hmm. and continues doing as he does. Now, this is an even better part of the story. Right. 1955, they're hosting Surrey at Grace Road. Remember, remembering as Daniel, I'm sure, will detail here, this is the all-time greatest, most dominant county side. And it's the side that, that's led by Peter May. They win, what is it, eight championships in the space of 10 years, something like that. You know, Lock, Laker, all the rest of it. And they uh, bowled out for 114 Leicestershire, as you would expect, mm-hmm. Lock takes a six for. Charles Palmer, who hasn't bowled for the entirety of the season, comes on to bowl one over to spin the spinners around to change of ends. That's his job as captain. Sure. One over. He jokes to Peter May and says, I haven't bowled all year. Please go easy on me. I'm just going to bowl one over to change ends. Trevor Bailey described the boil, Trevor Bailey, as Jeremy Coney says when I learnt about cricket, it was reading a book about Trevor Bailey with little mints inside the pages all stuck together. Described him as a hen-pecked bank clerk in a farce. His bowling. He was That's five the foot only seven. Time I think I'll ever hear of somebody having Trevor Bailey's book with the pages stuck together. <laughs> sorry, sorry, go on. So Palmer's party. So Palmer's party trick as a bowler was bowling what he'd referred to affectionately as donkey drops, where he would intentionally lob the ball twenty feet in the air. No and land the ball on the stumps at the other end before the waist-high no-ball law came in. Spedigus dropper. This is what he did. He perfected it. He did so, the Arthur Conan Doyle thing. Exactly. So he was known as doing this in the mid-50s. He, did, he, he seldom bowled by this stage of right. his career. He did on this day, though. He did on this day. Is he bowling the... A remarkable thing happened. Bowling just straight up, nothing, medium paces. He's not bowling the lobs. No, he's bowling, he's bowling medium pace. Right. He identifies a wet patch on the pitch at Grace Road. 12 overs later... 12 overs, 12 maidens, 8 for 0. <laughs> seven, seven Surrey greats, including Peter May, including I think Stuart Surridge would have been in that side, Daniel, I'm almost certain. Yeah. Uh, a, bit early for, a bit early for Barrington, but maybe Constable, Sydenham. I mean, these uh, are, they win every year, right? This is the best team in the yeah, land by the length of the Flemington they're, they're, in the, they're in the middle of their 7 out of 8 championship winning sides. It was... It was probably like the second best side that they had in that streak. 57 was the best. So it might be just a little early for Barrington. I won't go on about Surrey, but yeah, they were bloody good. So he's, he, his figures at one stage, 12 overs, 12 maidens, 8 for 0. He kept landing eight, it in the wet patch. Wickets. <laughs> 8 wickets. 7 of them bowled. 8 wickets Seven for them, no runs. And he, and he bowled what I can tell from reading about him. He bowled right arm slow, and they just right. kept skidding on hitting the pitch, and I guess we were still in uncovered pitch territory. Okay. Now, the world record for an 8 for was 8 for 2 secured by Surrey man Jim Laker in a game that we discussed about six months ago. That's right. Back in 1950, playing for yep. England against the rest. I think that was at Bradford. Okay. That was only five seasons before this. Okay. And Jim Laker walks out when he's taken eight for zero. No. And Jim Laker <laughs> gets dropped. It would have been nine for zero. Oh. And then he takes two wild swishes, hits seven <laughs> runs, a four and a three, to ruin... The world record of his was about to be broken by Charles oh, Palmer. Finishes with 14 no. overs, 12 maidens, 8 for 7. I am tipping that had he taken 9 for none, we would have heard of Charles Palmer before I'm, this I'm, tip, I'm tipping we may have. He walked into the Surrey dressing rooms and said, Sorry, gentlemen, sorry about that. Sorry about that 8 for 7 I've just uh, taken. So Leicestershire go into the second dig. They've got a healthy first innings lead, having bowled them out for 70-odd. They get rolled for 165. Surrey a set 203 and... Palmer gets 64 of those, um, 165. He performs again. Surrey is set 203 and get it three down. You ask, did he bowl again? 
He sure did. 13 overs, 12 maidens, none for one, making match figures of 27 overs, 24 maidens, 8 for 8 in a losing team. <laughs> in a side that have been obliterated in the end by seven wickets. That is absolutely beautiful. But the lesson of the story is, is don't, don't, don't poke the beast. I mean, don't, 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 you don't do that to Surrey. <laughs> don't poke the Surrey massive. Just tell me, have you, have you got who scored Surrey's runs? I, I haven't got that in front of me. I probably can bring it up, but let's, let's not focus on Surrey just for once. <laughs> so they, they get the job done. That's, as some horn blows in the background, because we're in India after yeah, all, yeah, yeah. that's more or less the end of his playing career. Okay. He kicks on for a couple of more years. He finishes with 17,500 runs at 32. 33 centuries, 365 wickets, roughly a wicket a game. But you can never take away the eight for seven. What a staggering outlier. <laughs> Later in life, chair of Leicestershire for like 20 years, MCC committee, MCC president during World Series cricket. So the story oh. went five foot seven Charles Palmer up against Kerry Packer mm. um, when he was leading the MCC in 1978, 1979 during a really tough time for English cricket. Chaired the TCCB between 83 and 85. And how's this? So after the peace accord. Has after been the peace accord. How's yeah. this? He was the guy who thought of moving first-class cricket to four days in England, away from three days. He had one other idea as well that wasn't successful, to bring back uncovered pitches like the one he bowled on back in 1953. Oh, yes. And um, he passed away in the March of 2005 at the age of 85. But what a life in cricket. One test match on the extraordinary tour of 53-54 when he wasn't even meant to play and hadn't batted for three weeks. And when he hadn't bowled for an entire season, took eight for seven, should have been eight for none, should have been nine for none. Still the equal fourth best figures ever for an eight for in first-class cricket. Our DOB for Angus 374, Charles Palmer. What an incredible, dusty old bastard. And coming in at about 24 minutes after we started the show. We have got Brad here. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, challenging, <laughs> we're challenging one of the, uh, the, the longest periods of time it's taken to get to the end of the first number. It's highly <laughs> worth it, I've got to say. How, how did, have I not known anything about this guy before this point? I mean, I don't know either. He strikes me like the kind of dude I, I should have a, a knowledge of, but I, I mean, I knew the name, but I didn't know anything about him, Paz. And no offence to Scott Boland, but they wanted to build a statue for his six for seven. Exactly. I think Charles Palmer, eight for seven and everything else, he just read out about him or just narrated about him. He deserves more than one statue. At Grace Road, at yeah, least. Absolutely, you think, wouldn't yeah. you? Given he was the guy that led the club and organised the truck raffles and did everything else there, so... I love it. That's Angus Digby. That's your 374. If by some remote chance that was not the answer you're looking for. <laughs> lie to us. Drop us. Yeah, lie to us. Lie to us. Tell us right. I was right. Drop us a line and tell us that we were dead on and that you wanted Charles Palmer all along. <laughs> Next number is coming in from Matthew Wust, a.k.a. Fake, fake Patch, patch Clap. clap. Yeah, Here we go. go. It is $9.40. You better explain the Fake Patch Clap again for new listeners. Okay, so initially Matt signed up pretending to be his friend Patch Clap because he wanted to tell Patch. He wanted Patch to hear the show and have a number in his name without knowing it was going to happen. Unbeknownst to him, Patch also signed up about two weeks later and thus we had fake Patch Clap and real Patch Clap within two <laughs> weeks of each other and they've been sorting it out ever since. But on this occasion we've got Matt with his real name. This is 942. It's in Australian dollars and I'm going to start with something that's, that's near to both of our hearts, okay. Adam, which is something we've talked about on the show before. The fact that the ICC World Championship is listed as a separate fucking series in Stats Guru. Infuriating. Absolutely infuriating. ridiculous. You're like, oh, who, took, who scored the most runs in a series? Joe Root did well, now. Was it Donald Bradman <laughs> in, in the Ashes with his 900 and whatever it is? No, it's not. It's, it's Joe Root in 933 test matches in the World Test Championship of this. It's not a series. Sort it out, Crick Info. We like a lot of the work you do, but that is really giving us the shits. Right, but so uh, on a... 
on an occasion when I was going through some statistics at one point, as I want to do, I noticed that something was missing in the list of One Day International series, which piqued my interest. 1998, Commonwealth Games, it's not there. Not there? Not there. What's going Steve on? Steve Waugh, Commonwealth Games silver medalist? Yep. Not registered as a series. I thought, Stephen Fleming, Commonwealth Games bronze medalist? Yep. Absolutely. Not, not not uh, credited with that achievement. You know why they weren't? No. Because they didn't want to have one-day status for the West Indian sides who registered as separate countries. I'm guessing that was the case. Yeah, but, was, so yeah. I remember having covered the Commonwealth Games last year, there was a prominent story before the Games, which was news that everything in the Commonwealth Games last year would have official mm, T20 mm. international status and that that was an exception rather than a rule. And the fact that that had to be clarified was because Barbados were playing rather than West Indies. Yep. And so players like DeAndre Dotton, Hayley Matthews, half a dozen others in that Barbados side who have played or do still play for the West Indies are now listed as having played international cricket for two different teams, which means that if you look up those players on the stats lists, they come up with the WIW slash BRBW thing in the way that, say, a Steve Harmison or a Muralith has 11. the ICC yeah. slash ICC. Which also World shits 11. me about how Shane yep. Warne's last one day international was for the World 11 three yeah. years after he retired from one day cricket in the tsunami game. In the It's, it's the Asia 11 Asia versus 11. the yeah. something else. Maybe rest of the world? Rest of the world. I and think then, it was rest of the world was Warnie's. Yep. Yeah. And they also had the Africa versus Asia teams where Sean yep. Pollock was playing for the African team and, and, and so on and so forth. You've got the other rest of the world sides, haven't you? You've got uh, the South Africa-induced rest of the world side, the tour in England. But without status. 72. But they, but they didn't have international... They, they did for a time and yeah, they had a retrospective but, but taken away. That yeah. Alan, Alan Jones got yeah, given his yeah. cap by England, didn't he? So uh, that, that creates another annoying anomaly on Wikipedia because when you're looking for people's cap numbers, they had to shoehorn Alan Jones's cap number into about... Is it like 700 or 701? I feel like it's the one before Sam Billings. I think, he, I think Billings is yeah, 700. It's, it's, yeah, it's somewhere yeah. in there. So, yeah, th these things annoy numerologists, including <laughs> myself. Yeah. He's, Alan Jones is 696 and okay. Billings is 697 okay. on, the, on the England list. Right. Um, that's... From memory, that's that's how it worked out. Oh, was Billings 700? I think no, Billings was 700. Else, Billings is 700. Va Vaughan was 600, Billings is 700. Someone else comes in at 697. It's right. like Zach Crawley or... Old yeah, Pope or one of it would have been someone who played because that Alan Jones cap was given out during the lockdown. Yep. It was done on Zoom, I remember. So it must have been someone that played in 2021 for England. Uh, not Saqib Mahmood, not Matt Fisher. No. That's the winter after. No, no, no. Uh, it'll is, come to me. This is before that. It's, yep. in the, it's in the Zach Crawley sort of era. It might yep. be him. So speaking of Sean Pollock, in 1998, he's playing in the Commonwealth Games and he doesn't, he doesn't get credited with the ODIs that are not given as ODIs, so they don't come up in stat searches. The Commonwealth Games yeah. of 1998 goes like this. 16 teams, four groups, uh, and basically the top team in each group cruises through unbeaten, well, aside from Sri Lanka, who had some hiccups. They beat Jamaica, Malaysia, and Zimbabwe, and they only beat Zimbabwe by a run. Everybody else did it. Easy, Australia beat India, Canada, and Antigua and Barbuda. South Africa beat Barbados, Northern Ireland, and Bangladesh. And New Zealand survived the group of death with Pakistan, Kenya and Scotland. They got out unscathed. So, the Australians sent a very good squad. These players aren't all necessarily their, their absolute peak players at this point, but they've got the War Brothers leading the side as captain and vice-captain. Cute. Yep. They've got Ricky Ponting, Michael Bevan, Darren Lehman, Adam Gilchrist, Damian Martin for their batting. Brad Young? 
Uh, yeah, we'll come to that. They've okay. got Long Tom Moody and Brendan Julian as the all-rounders. They've got Bickle, Fleming, Kasprovich, the fast bowlers. They've got Brad Young, left-arm orthodox, and Gavin Robertson, ah. Australian test legend Gavin Robertson, according to <laughs> Fox Sports, as the spinners. So they come into the semi-finals and Australia do an Isle of Man on New Zealand. They absolutely humiliate them. <laughs> they bowl them out for 58 and chase it in less than 11 overs. Happy days. Damien Fleming takes the top three within seven overs to start things off. Uh, as a point of contrast, South Africa need to chase 130 against Sri Lanka and they lose nine wickets in doing so. Right. Nearly choke again in the semi-finals of a world tournament, in inverted commas, world tournament. And Nicky Boyer down at number 10 manages to club a few runs at the end and get them over the line. So they make it into the final. Uh, Australia make it into the final. And I mentioned Sean Pollock. Nine overs, four for 19. Four for 19 in the final against the Australians. So they've already got Gilchrist opening. Yep. This, is, this is post. He's already made that 100 against South Africa the season before. And, okay. and he's becoming the opener that he's going to be. But he doesn't make any. And Sean Pollock gets Mark Waugh, Gilchrist and Ponting out. One, two, three off the start. And then he comes back later and gets Darren Lehman out when there's a partnership building with Steve Waugh. They're four for 121. Then they're five for 121. And the spinners come on choke the scoring there are some run outs Steve Waugh finishes up 90 not out I'm sure some people have things to say about Steve Waugh with enjoy a couple of run outs at the end as well at Red Inca plus some run outs but 90 not out the only one to actually make any runs he earned that silver medal that day Stephen <laughs> Roger Waugh so South Australia chase it not without a few problems um, but they get it six wickets down thanks to a player I have never heard of called Mike Rindell have you ever heard of Mike Rindell yeah left handed opener attacking batter uh, was this South Africa's answer to Sanaj Jayasuriya. He played uh, a Tri-Nations final against India and South Africa. I remember him. But he had a brief run, yeah. South Africa's answer to Sanaj Jayasuriya, aside from being famous and scoring lots of runs. <laughs> but it left-handed. Like, yeah, they brought in Mike Rindell and Rudy Bryson, uh, two guys, into that uh, triangular that South Africa played with India, South Africa, Kenya. Uh, Kenya beat India in one of those games. But, um, yeah, Rudy Bryson... Uh, took a famous, famous wicket of Sachin Tendulkar. No, in fact, he took a catch of Sachin Tendulkar at shot fine leg of Hansi Kroenje's bowling and changed the game. So, yeah, Mike Rindell. Uh, and I, uh, that's brilliant from you, by the way, unprompted. The fact <laughs> that Jeff said a moment ago that, uh, that South Australia beat Australia would, have, would please the two South Australians here, both you and Clemate, am I right? I've said that so many times on this show. I can't tell those two places apart. It's like Gloucestershire and Glamorgan. South Australian, South Africa, whatever. <laughs> sort your acronyms out. Potato, potato. Who calls about a potato? Can, yeah, nobody says potato. Nobody, nobody. So can I say the global oh, respect... Oh, three South Australians. Dan Brady to our left. Sorry, my apologies. The global respect for Mike Rindell is summed up in the fact that his entire biography on Crick Info says this. Mike Rindell was an attacking left-hand bat who also bowled left-arm dobbers and orthodox left-arm... You should freelance the Crick Info, Baz. You should write their player pages for obscure 90s cricketers. He's got one line. That's his bio. Anyway, South Africa actually wins something for the only time in their history. Australia proudly go home with their silver medals like... I don't know, I assume like Susie O'Neill won some silver medals. Maybe Hayley Lewis. She did. In the, Hayley in Lewis the won a bunch of them in 92, games. yeah. Yeah, some golds and some silvers. Damien Fleming's only contribution in the final is that he gets out Herschel Gibbs late in the game when it's pretty much done anyway. Why do I mention that? He took one for 44 in the final. He took three for 23 against New Zealand. He took four for 21 against Canada. He took five for 24 against Antigua and Barbuda. And he got the big wicket of Sachin Ramesh Tendulkar, caught behind for 11 against India. Figures of one for 20. Uh, 
What does that mean? In the tournament, he took 14 wickets for 132 runs, which is a bowling average of 9.42 at the Commonwealth Games, unlisted for Damien Fleming. Absolutely brilliant. And the other thing I'll add is that in addition to that, Flem had a really good game for Australia against Australia A. As Clemo size to my right, he knows this as well from listening. In fact, are you wearing that? No, you're wearing the World Series Cup shirt, not the, uh, not the Australia 8 shirt. But that doesn't count either as a one-day international. So those wickets, plus I think Flem took in the second final four for spit at the MCG. He should have, and I think Bredo's um, over to my left, he wants to add to this. Just a Bredig in a box fact. <laughs> my favourite Commonwealth Games silver medal. 1994 Commonwealth Games, Victoria, Canada. Karen Van Werdum in the women's 100-metre freestyle wins silver. You know, you expect Australia to win gold in the Commonwealth Games and swimming. Wins silver, so happy, on live TV straight after the race, asks her fiancé to marry her on the inter- the live interview afterwards. I think they later got divorced, but it was a great TV moment. Okay, well, there you go, Baz. Now, on that Commonwealth Games... Uh, I was sure that was going to be a Damien Fleming fact, by the way. But anyway, that's right. <laughs> no, it was an interesting time in Indian cricket because this is when India was uh, busy playing the Sahara Cup in Canada. So yep. from, starting 1996, every year around that same time that the Commonwealth Games were held, uh, they would play the Sahara Cup, a five-match, one-day series, India-Pakistan, where the famous, infamous Inzamam Alu incident happened. You remember when he jumped into the crowd to beat up someone. Louis Cameron <laughs> loves the Alu. That's how we learned what my they first, called... My first word of Urdu slash Hindi was knowing that Inzamam being called Alu, an, an alu in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> so now when the Commonwealth Games was about supposed to clash with the Sahara Cup, uh, India was in a fix. I mean, they needed... They said, okay, we'll send an A-team led by Saurav Ganguly, for the first time he ever led an Indian side to Canada. But they said, we still need serious representation in our Commonwealth Games side because it's the first time India as a country is going to the Commonwealth Games. And they really felt they could win a medal. They finished ninth, but they sent a B side, which included Sachin Tendulkar, Anil Kumle, but Sachin Tendulkar said, no, I won't captain this side because this is not the actual Indian side. So they named Ajay Jadeja as captain. Ah. Because this is a era where Tendulkar was officially India's captain. And they go there and... It's all, but most Indians remember that Commonwealth Games just for one thing. Nothing to do with cricket. Amai Kurashia, who had a, uh, the nets named after him right here in Indore. I'm sure <laughs> you guys would have walked past him. It was so hot in Malaysia during that time that he gets his first chance and maybe first real chance to play for India. It's so hot, he faints and he's carried off a stretcher. And the only photo to appear in the Indian newspapers from the Commonwealth Games was Amai Kurasi on a stretcher. Because nobody else did anything of note during that tournament. That, that might have informed where they started the marathon at 6am during that Commonwealth Games. Because it was so hot during the day, they had to start the marathon. Like they did uh, at the, what was it, the Olympics a couple of years ago, I think they yeah, did the same and, thing. And also on Sean Pollock and his numbers not... He's got... You were talking about the Afro-Asia 11, right? Or the Africa 11 versus the Asia 11. He does have a, a very telling stat. For the longest time, one of the highest ninth wicket partnerships in ODI cricket was Sean Pollock and Thomas Odoyo. It happened, I think, in Chennai when Africa 11 ran Asia 11 close and MS Dhoni won Asia 11 the match. We, so. I think we've done that before. It was yeah. Dhoni's... Yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure that that's come up, you know, in an earlier story time. We've definitely talked about that series before. But... Damien Fleming, that's my go. That's my guess Excellent. in terms of Matt Wurst slash... Excellent. Slash fake patch clap. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. 
because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hi, I'm Brian Roddle. You're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Anna Forsyth is next friend of the show. Canadian dollars, $9.30. What does 9.30 in a Canadian context mean well, for you? Well, normally, Anna being Anna, um, I assume it's going to be something about uh, Steve and Finn, and it's going to be something about Middlesex. Uh, Anna is a, is a Finney enthusiast. Mm-hmm. She once sent through a pledge, drunk, didn't remember what it was about, and it was still about Finney, I'm pretty sure. Yep. So um, Anna, who runs a hockey podcast indeed, Anna was the idea, well, she, was, she trained us on how to use Discord. She, was, she initially said, this Discord thing could be a good idea for you. I use it for my ice hockey podcast and one thing led to another. I think I still subscribe to her podcast's Discord in, in my mm-hmm. account. Anyway, so 9.30 CAD. The, uh, the Montreal Canadiens. The, the ideas people who set up the Mumbai Indians. And they were like, this is a good name for a, for a team. Let's just name it after the country that we're in. So, Anna, um, now, given we've already done an, an eight for seven today, yep. my mind immediately, and I was doing this, in sequence, the numbers I was going to read out today, I, I thought about nine for 30s. Now, Finney didn't take a nine for 30. This is not going to be about Steve Finn, but I, I've got a bit of a campaign to start today, Jeff, and this has been percolating after okay. a conversation we had a couple of weeks ago in, in Nagpur. Let's get it percolating. <laughs> <laughs> so there have been eight nine for 30s in first-class cricket. There have so, been eight? There have been eight. There, uh, eight surpri- I, I, was, I was surprised by that as well, but there have been eight. How many people have taken nine for none? Nobody, because the dickheads at Leicestershire couldn't fucking catch. <laughs> exactly right, yeah. exactly right. And he stopped bowling after 12... Anyway, he would have beat Laker, regardless. Two of them have been at Lords, mm-hmm. and one of them is ridiculous. And I want to focus I on that ridiculous, one. ridiculous, but... Ridiculous on the basis okay. that Tom Haywood, not that Tom Haywood, oh. not the Tom Haywood that played 35 test matches over oh. 13 years at the end of the 19th century and the start of the 20th century, his... Uncle Tom. Oh. Not, not an uncle, not no. an uncle Tom, but okay. his, his... Not that Tom Hayward. Not that Tim, Tim Minchin. Not that Tim not Minchin. Not that Wuss. Not that Patch Clap. Exactly. Not so that not Tom that Hayward. Tom Hayward. Okay. He took his nine for 30 yep. in an England versus Kent game in 1860 at Lord's. Right. Now, Which they used to do before they had international cricket. They used to just get an England 11 together and have them play county teams. Well, here's the absurdity of it. They weren't playing a county 11. They were playing a oh. county 16. What? Kent fielded 16 players in this game. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Jeff, we spoke about a fixture that you reflected Swansea on. Swansea playing... A touring side where 22 players turned out, yep. and I'm pretty sure that didn't have first-class status. No, it did not, because typically first-class status means you have 11 players versus 11 players. Well, guess what? This does. This has first-class status. kidding me? I'm not kidding you. It's got a massive fucking How? asterisk on the um, Association of Cricket Statisticians website. It, and that's what got me thinking. Why has it got the asterisk? So when I had a look. Now, I want to tell you about the game, then about the man, then about the performance. So we'll start with the game itself. 1860, Kent 16 at Lords. They make 124. Our man Tom Haywood's first innings, 6 for 19 from 28 overs, as you do. Mm-hmm. England then rolled for 80. Mm-hmm. So Kent are in a, a good position here. Fired up. They take the 15 wickets they need to bowl out Kent the second time around for 42. Okay. Haywood Wait, takes nine for they 30. They take 15 wickets. Because they've got for to take 42. 15 to bowl them out that they lane. They take 15 for 42. They do. And this is a first class match. It is. It is. Dennis Lilly, rest of the world, no. Oh, believe me, we're 15 getting there. 15 for 42? Oh, b- yes. Believe me, we're getting there. Okay. So nine for 30 out of the 15 gives him match figures of 15 for 59. As it happens, England 
were bowled out for 54 in the second innings. Kent won by 32 runs. The Kent 16, despite being bowled out for 42 in the second dig, so still took, found took, a way to win. He took 15 in the match, not 15 in the innings. 15 in the match. 15 okay. for 59, but right. 15 was what yeah. they required to take to, to bowl out Kent. But less than 10 in each innings. So it doesn't mess with the... like Because if you're looking up stats of who's got the yeah. best bowling figures in first class Oh, no, cricket, no, no, no. It's listed. Like, no, no, I'm, I'm not saying it's not listed. I'm yeah. just saying that if it were, say, 13 wickets in an innings... If it were more than 10, then it would completely screw with the Well, Well, this, this, is, this is something that has crossed okay. my mind. Yeah. In these absurd games where more than 11 players have taken the field, what if in this game, instead of Haywood, it's chaos here, instead of Haywood taking 9 for 30, what if he'd taken 11 for 30? Yeah. That would have first-class status. Yes. Someone taking 11 wickets That's in an innings. Something that is impossible to do in our conception. So I'll, I'll, I, might, I might circle back on that, but just want to okay. say that A, Kent somehow win by 32 runs. Okay. B, I mentioned already that he's the... Um, the uncle of the great Tom Haywood, who played yep. 13 years of test matches. and um, Kent's at, the, the team with 16 players. Kent's the team with 16 so players. So the team with 16 players, weirdly, wins the match. Well, yes, yeah. you could say funnily, that, yes. Funnily enough. Okay. Yeah, although it's not, not due to their batting, it's due sure. to their, what they do with the ball. And I okay. assume they had 11 players in the field, although who knows? Who knows what one can assume about this absurdity? We had Un- a clarification on this. Uh, it might have been Talerman on the Discord was saying that you could field all of your players. Right, if so maybe they had 16 players, fielders. You were allowed to Dan- put them Daniel's all on the desperate field. to jump in. You better put the microphone in or he's yeah, going to yeah, explode. Yeah, yeah, they absolutely did. That was like the whole point. So you played against, you didn't just have to like bowl them all out. They had all the bloody fielders as well. Because the, the principle of these games was, so like the All England games, and I imagine it's one of those, where they it were was, like the yeah. kind of all-stars, like the Harlem Globetrotters. So they were like a Kerry Packer circus. So the very best players were set around. And because they were too good, they had to play against more players in order to, it's like a handicap, in order to equalise it. And they did this loads of times. They play against 22. And can you imagine, like, setting a field if you've got, like, basically 20 fielders? How can you screw that up? I mean, talk about an in-out field. You, you can basically, you know, for every single eventuality. And yet, they were obviously far, far better. You know, they had, like, uh, I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll know the names. But they, they had the, great, the greatest England players were all signed up by, I can't remember the entrepreneur's name, but he put this as a travelling circus and took it around because first-class cricket didn't really sort of become even remotely organised until 1863, really. Well, it depends. It's it's, it's classified. Some classified as 17... 70, I think you're right in saying. Others use the Napoleonic War, the the Battle of Waterloo, right? They use 1812 and there are other other measures used, but obviously this is in the less sophisticated time when the championship means less. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, 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 it's true that there are games that are afforded first-class status, but the sort of organisation of it and making them teams against teams, so I could hear your outrage at the idea of there being 16 against 11, but that it was basically because in order to create something that worked for betting and made it a spectacle, you, you wanted the best players to play, but it would be too easy if they played against somebody else. So, right. so against another 11 players. So you uh, have yeah, to basically it, it, it handicap them. All, it all stands to reason, right? If there were just games of cricket, I'd have no problem with it. But right. where I think there's this huge inconsistency... And by the way, I should, I should finish off by saying that Uncle Tom Haywood, the, the lesser spotted Tom Haywood, did travel on the first tour to America that England went on, which was the first ever tour away from home. He went to the first tour of Australia, which was the... Sorry, the second tour of Australia. I think that was in 1861. So he was a serious cricketer, mainly a batter, one of the most well-known batters of his generation. But these little dinky medium paces netted him 267 wickets at an average of 15, which is nothing remarkable in that era, by the way. Averaging 15 with the ball was de rigueur back then. But he still has a 15 for 59 and a 9 for 30 in his stats page to this day, 
in his Kent 16 games. So my campaign is that we have had in the past games come into having first-class status mm -hmm. and then not have first-class status yeah. again. This has been an ongoing theme where games have been reclassified across the journey. But what I would say here and now, given there was a possibility in this fixture for Tom Hayward to have taken more than nine wickets, more than 10 wickets in an innings, I think all of these games, with more than 11 aside, should be struck from the record. They yeah. should not have first-class status, and there is no reason why this can't be altered retrospectively, because it, it does not stand to reason, it does not stack up now, nor did it stack up then. They were carnival games at best, and even if they did have an all-England team playing, even if it wasn't Lords, this isn't yeah. right. Those games are like us in this hotel. They do not belong here. They shouldn't have got in in the first place. And as soon as somebody realises that they are in here, they should be kicked out as soon as possible. You can't, like, you've got to have a basic cut-off for entry, and surely that has to be evenly matched teams versus evenly matched teams, right? 11 versus 11 on a side. Surely. Surely. Yeah, and, and again, I think this is simply a tweak. We, we, we've had the rest of the World Games reclassified. They were, you know, test matches than they weren't. We're, we've obviously been campaigning for the World Series cricket games to be made first class status because they were proper games of cricket. I'm not saying these weren't legit games, but they were effectively exhibition games. And the fact that there could have been 11 wickets taken in an innings easily enough, or indeed more than 20 wickets by a single bowler, I think is enough to invalidate them as first class. And we should get on that and we should write to people. We should write them a letter. Yes, let we us will. write a stern letter to whoever is in charge of this, and I don't know who that is. Andrew Sampson Andrew might Sampson be an ally will. in this. Dan makes the point. Oh, yeah, I mean, but I mean, surely he wouldn't. I mean, he must know about this game. He knows about it. You'd think so. So uh, he hasn't been sufficiently exercised to, <laughs> to, to launch the campaign yet. But we will be on your side, Andrew. Bit All of background right. noise coming through, clearly, if you're listening, and we're trying to get that rectified. We'll see how we go. We might have music for the rest of the podcast. We Who's might. tonight? This might just be a, a cool jams. This might just be a, a moon safari podcast from Brett's trying on. to get it turned off. There's a guy to our right who's trying to turn one speaker off. I don't think that's going to quite cut it. We'll no, see. He's installing a, a speaker or fixing it or something. <laughs> he's, he's up a ladder. This is just, it's just the vibe here. There we go. Beautiful. We're vibing. Um, now, our next number. Let us move on to that. It comes in from Sam Hartman and Paul Richards. It is $3.72. And I'm going to guess that this is the same answer to this because it, they're both AUD they both came in without a clue and so I'm thinking it's got to be the same thing I don't know whether my answer is their answer but I okay. think their answer is going to be the same answer so I'm putting them together at this point now 372 feels like a cap number I reckon and we talked a lot about Brad Young well we mentioned Brad Young in, the in, in dispatches games, who held the distinction of being the third place wicket taker at the Commonwealth Games in 1998 did he third, yeah. and you know how his career how he came a cropper yes, yeah I do I'll come I'll oh right okay so he had a big influence on the ten, way the game changed ten wickets an average of six okay. in, in the, that Commonwealth Games but cap number 372 for Australia is Sean Young who ah. for a while I was like are they the same person but they're not the same person Brad Young and Sean Young are different even though they play around the same era in the late 90s but before we leave Brad Young who is not the cap holder for this number I wanted to go back over a little couple of things I learned while looking up the Commonwealth Games pledge so left arm orthodox spinner officially played in six one day internationals because the Commonwealth Games ones don't count and in those six ODIs he took one wicket right not not so hot uh, the the figures, the matches go like this. None for 49 against South Africa in Perth, where they take him at 7 and over. None for 64 against India in Dhaka, where he goes at 8 and over. That was in the Champions Trophy, I reckon. None for 66 against Pakistan in Karachi at 6.6 .6 and over, where he gets his one wicket, one for 26. 
sorry, in his next game in Peshawar, he gets his one for 26, dismisses Moen Khan, the Pakistan keeper, LBW, and goes at 4.33 and over. Then he gets none for 46 in Lahore at 5.75 and over. Lastly, against Sri Lanka in Sydney in January 1999. Does not bat, does not bowl, uh, does not take a catch. Thanks for coming. And initially, because I didn't actually remember this bit, I was like, what's Mm. happening here? Was it a washout? Did they chase 60 in no time? And I was looking at the scorecard. Now, Sri Lanka faced their full 50 overs. They make 259. Glenn McGrath bowls, Damien Fleming bowls, Brendan Julian, Greg Blewett, Bevan. Damien Martin bowls. I'm like, what's going on here? And the funniest answer, what would have been the best answer to this, is who was in charge in that match? Shane Warne was the captain. <laughs> I was like, wouldn't it have been hilarious if they picked Brad Young and Shane Warne was like, nah, he's shit. I'm going to bowl my 10 overs, take two for 44, and I'm not going to give him an over at all. That's not what happened. He no. wrecked his knee smashing into a fence, trying to field the ball, um, and wasn't able to bowl. It was really all. sad. So he was, and Brad's going to jump in, I'll go first. So he, he slid into the fence when fielding, and that was the um, the catalyst for them bringing in not initially the sponges that we're familiar with today, but there was a after that incident because until then, you know, the, the fence was the boundary. You know, our childhoods had to clear the fence to to be awarded six runs. And yeah, remember Ponting doing it as well. Yeah. So what they did here was due to the danger to fielders as the game became more developed, as fielding became more athletic. That's when they, I think, at the start it was two meters. Something the jump set is two meters. It's expanded to about four meters, five meters now the gap between where the rope was and where the advertising boards would be for exactly that reason. So, yeah, his legacy, his last game, is the reason why players are notionally safe for now. This came up in commentary in a game I was doing at Radlett with Izzy Westbury three years ago, a game between Middlesex and Hampshire, where a bowler for Hampshire, who I think might have been making his debut, called Ryan Stevenson, um, there was a um, boundary rope, and because they were playing at Radlett and it was in COVID times, they had marquees around the ground to, um, instead of dressing rooms, for the players to change in and, and, and have their lunch in. And my personal view at the time, and I said this on air, was that the rope, the gap between the rope and the marquee was pretty bloody close. As we learnt when Ryan Stevenson went sliding over the boundary and had a metal stake go through his leg and taking him out of the game. And I think it went all the way down to the bone and he missed a number of weeks or even maybe a number of months of the season. And it reminded me of the Brad Young thing. Help, I'm, I'm pleased to say Stevenson came back and I saw him bowl again last year. But yeah, it brought back memories of how close it can be for players who go athletically diving when those boards are so, so close to their legs. Now, all I want to say on Brad Young is on behalf of the universe, I did sort of make it up to Brad Young three years ago as umpiring an under-14s game in Adelaide, where Brad Young's very talented young son, Will Young, was playing. And uh, he was on five when a left-arm spinner bowling around the wicket. Big LBW shout. Might have been umpire's call. I give it not out. And as the bowler's walking back, I'm like, maybe I could have given that out. Goes on to smash 135. I can't look the bowler in the eye ever again. I didn't know it was Brad Young's son. But you then know, the match is over and then I find out like, you know, the young family was there and they were very, very appreciative of me giving this a not out and on fire. I'm duty bound to say that given you've said the name Will Young, Dan's going to make a joke now about, Australia, about, about British Idol or whatever it is with a guy no, called no, Will I Young. I wasn't going to do that. I, I'm not going to leave right now. <laughs> there um, it is. Cha. Uh, I, I was genuinely requesting because listening to you saying all that, um, we used to watch uh, Australian test matches and we saw that, you know, you had to clear the fence. You said you had to clear the fence. Yes. In England, you had to clear the rope. Yes. Now... Even like in the 70s when I was watching, it was, the, the advertising hoardings were not the boundary. The rope was a bit close to the boundary, I'll give you that. But we, I can't remember when we didn't have a rope. So did, point. Did, in England, did we always have a rope? 
And did you guys not? I, well, no, definitely not in Australia. Not in, not it was always, I mean, days. I'm looking over at Bretto, who might have an answer on this as well. I mean, my sense is that I can't think of a time watching cricket, like archival footage of cricket in Australia where it wasn't the fence. Mid, mid-90s, it's still the fence. Oh, very much yeah. so. The young incident changes everything. But Bretto in a box. There were instances in the 1980s where there was a rope at various times. Occasionally, you'd see one at the Wacker ground if the pitch was on the one side and the boundary was long on the other side. And you also randomly saw it at times at the SCG. I don't actually know why, but it was certainly there. I think maybe that was also to do with days when the pitch was on one side of the square. What a value add that is, knowing about rope history. But we have always, I mean, ever since I started watching, there's always been a rope. And and look at old cricket from England, always it was always a rope where it wasn't it wasn't the fence except except this is the only this is the only difference uh, is at lords where in front of the pavilion there didn't used to be a rope so the ball had to go up All that slope the hill. And, hit right. the, and hit the little fence but everywhere else around lords always had a rope is this because your all your grounds have trees on them a what <laughs> all your grounds have trees on them yeah, that well, dead now. All, all is slightly uh, exaggerated. You mean Canterbury? Yeah, but <laughs> and club grounds. I've played at club grounds. Club grounds yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I mean, uh, yeah. All right. Can can I get back to Brad Young? Please, please. As much as this rope discursion has been extremely, extremely interesting for everybody involved. So the the point is, he's played six games. One of them he didn't get to bowl because he chopped his leg off and <laughs> the very best time that he's had he's gone at four and a half and over so by the standards of the day he's been smashed in every single game that he's played and he's taken one wicket and an average of about 251 in one day international cricket not so great but if you included his commonwealth games mm. his record would say 11 wickets at 28 what a difference the classification makes uh, the last thing is this he finishes playing first class cricket in 0203 for south australia in the 2012-13 season, 10 years later, Darren Berry, coaching over there, signs him up, not playing grade cricket, he's playing Adelaide turf cricket, signs him up to play in the Big Bash in a season of the BBL. <laughs> he opens the bowling. He plays five matches that season. He gets Dan Smith out for a duck, one for 11 in one game. Gets Bob Quiney out in the power play the next game. Then he gets Marlon Samuels and a Renegades opener called Michael Hill, who I don't remember, in the power play the next game. In, against the Hurricanes. Louis Rogge's hands up. Was he one of your first-class wickets? No, I've played a lot of cricket with Michael Hill. He's captain of Essendon at the moment. Well, he's not the captain anymore. He's still a, He was an under-19 captain. I think he mm. captained Phil Hughes. I'm just disappointed you don't know who Michael Hill is. There, there are various <laughs> players who I've not heard of in my life and who I now know a little bit more about. He plays against the Hurricanes up against Tim Payne, Aidan Blizzard, Ricky Ponting. Four overs, none for 17. And then he gets his old mate Herschel Gibbs out. Huh. Um, you know, 1998, Commonwealth Games flashback. So Herschel was playing uh, in the Big Bash then, wasn't he? Herschel was playing the Big Bash in 12-13 for Perth, which is where all South Africans like to go <laughs> once they decide to leave <laughs> South Africa. So... <laughs> Point is, five games, five wickets, six and a half and over, a strike rate of 21, wicket every 21 balls, very good T20 bowling figures in the five games that he plays in the Big Bash. Anyway, the whole point is that the answer to this question is not Brad Young, it is Sean Young. That's the answer I'm giving, even though I've talked about Brad Young forever. Great. We have talked about Sean Young and his inclusion in a test match before. Yep. He relates to Brad Young in that they both have very limited careers in the late 90s and they end up with shit figures out of it. Sean Young plays one test, doesn't get to do very much. The very short version of this, given we've talked about it before, is sixth Ashes test. Why do they have a sixth Ashes test? Unnecessary. Oh, until then, they did every time. The fifth test is Warren, Rifle, Gillespie, McGrath, and then ahead of the sixth test, Rifle goes home. That's right. Because his kid's getting born. 
Gillespie gets injured, Casper's come in, and they need somebody else, and they need Sean Young because he's playing at Gloucestershire. And he's just a medium pace all-rounder, but they pick him as one of their four bowlers. Uh, McGrath takes seven in the first innings. Casper takes seven in the second innings. So Sean Young gets to bowl seven overs, none for eight in the first innings, and one over in the second innings. He makes a duck in the first dig, and he's four not out, stranded 20 runs short from glory in a run chase in the second innings and never plays again for Australia. Five more years for Tasmania, finishes with 14 tonnes and 274 first-class wickets. Batting average better than bowling average, that's how you define an all-rounder. A good player who didn't take a wicket for Australia. Breddick in a box? The other all-rounder who was competing for a spot in that last test when they had all the injuries was Shane Lee, who never ended up playing a test match for Australia, even though he was part of uh, a couple of World Cup squads. Yeah, and that and that Sean Young appearance, we, we've discussed it before. It's because he took a bag of wickets against the touring Australians yep. when playing for, I think it was Gloucestershire, earlier in the yep, summer. So right. he was on the radar on account of that and right place, right time, kind of like Mike Whitney's. And speaking of the Brad Young story, I didn't know he came back to play Big Bash cricket. But, um, but it, it, it's a little bit reminiscent of what happened with Stuart McGill, how he got recalled to play in the Big Bash the years sixes. after the injuries that you know yeah. curtailed his career. So there must have been a bit of a, an energy around that. And Darren Berry, I mean, remember... He plucked Nathan Lyon from relative obscurity only 12 months before that to play in that same early days. It wasn't even called the Big Bastion. I think it was called, you know, T20 no, Australia first, or something. This is the first Big yeah, Bash so before that when season, it was, maybe. This yeah, one. so when it was the pre-Big Bash era yeah. of South Australian T20, that's when Lyon got called up from, you know, as we know, on the roller at Adelaide Oval, into the nets, bowling to the T20 side, into the side, plays in the final that year into the Australia A team, plays a test match six months later, 479 test wickets later, and his best bowling, well, at least maybe not his best figures, but the best bowling I've ever seen from him happened here at Indoor a couple of days ago. Right, we have a couple more numbers to go. This one is $2.80. It's in AUD. It's from James, and he says this, on theme with my previous pledges, but also an obvious tribute to SK Warren. And this, I'm, I'm going to have to reiterate that we don't play funny buggers with when the numbers come up. Yeah, yeah. This one has come up on the list in its natural order on the one-year anniversary of Shane Warne's death. We didn't tweak that in order to be cute. This is when it came up and this is where we are. Yeah, and, and in turn I feel a bit deficient in the answer I'm about to give. Obviously, the, the, the Shane Warne passing last year was um, uh, such a, a significant event and continues to live on the tributes today have been wonderful on, on social media and, and all the rest of it so I've scratched around a little bit here but I think where I get to will be uh, broadly okay and if I'm wrong we can do it again James on, on a revisit show so some of the answers it won't be Shane Warne took his 600th test wicket at Old Trafford uh, in a test where England declared on 280 back in 2005 <laughs> his first class economy rate was 2.8 if you round up in the finer word way and you don't round up in the wisdom way which okay. we have rejected in the past his 280th test wicket um, was Stephen Fleming, stumped by Ian Healy at Hobart in 1997. Commonwealth Games bronze medalist. Bronze medalist Stephen, Stephen Fleming. Fleming. That's say. right. Uh, and later on in that summer... Um, it's was not every he... day that you get to dismiss a Commonwealth Games bronze medalist. And can I say, like New Zealand's <laughs> performance in that, in that particular Games, just like the New Zealand women last year, like absolute dog shit until the bronze medal game and then somehow they managed to turn it on in a one-off and steal themselves a medal. Exactly right. I'm, yeah. I'm still astounded that New Zealand won that bronze medal given the way they've played in, that women's side have played in major tournaments. But in that same season, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drill down here because Shane Warne turned 28 um, on the 13th of September 1997 to so just before the 280th wicket. He took 49 test wickets while he was 28 at an average of 29. His best bowling figures in that year 
were the 11 he took at the SCG to reach his 300th test wicket, a story we've told recently. Not many people saw it on television because the test match was, was speeding to its conclusion. That was when they had um, more liberal cut-off times. They just played until bad light intervened if they were catching up overs. It was at about quarter past seven at night. So Channel 9 had long since gone to the television news mm. and the current affair or whatever was being played at that time of year. But that was when Warren was 28 years and 114 days wasn't the youngest. That was, uh, surprisingly, Kapil Dev, who was uh, 28 years and, and one day. I was watching the, um, the 1983 film oh, yeah. on the way over here to um, when I was returning from London the any other day. It, no, I mean, it really isn't any good <laughs> at all. I, I, it's really bad. But the funniest bit of it is when they're recapping the Tunbridge Wells, Kapil Dev 175, the, the most famous of, of Indian one-day innings, broke the world record at the time, hit six sixes. Um, Tunbridge Wells was the ground where Andy Zaltzman was there watching that day, our colleague from Test Match Special who's been on the final word doing Nerd Pledge Quiz in the past. He remembers being there as a little boy. Anyway, um, they so the, the actor playing Kapil Dev hits a six into the crowd and the real Kapil Dev <laughs> plays a cameo, sticks up his hand and catches it. The 16th guess he goes, great shot, Cappy, <laughs> as the cameo, <laughs> taking a six off himself with one hand stuck up right. um, into, into the sky. So I'm he surprised was th- it wasn't Amitabh Bachchan. He's just, he is everywhere in this country. My God, you cannot round a doorway without running into Amitabh Bachchan somewhere. Like posters of Modi, they're yeah. everywhere. So, uh, yeah, 28 and 114 days, not the youngest. Um, and, yeah, like when he was 28, or oh, sorry, he took... His wickets at 28 in just one series. I looked at that as well. That was in 2004, the home series against Sri Lanka, which immediately follows when he took his 500th test wicket over there, which is when he returned to the set, the test side after the drugs ban. So 10 wickets at, at 28 at home in, in the reverse leg. But yeah, I think, Jeff, what I was most interested in is that at age 28, you know, that is where Warren's career can kind of go one of two ways. He's taken his 300th test wicket. Yeah. He goes to India. His shoulder doesn't stand up against the stress of that. He has major shoulder surgery shortly thereafter. And there's no guarantee that he'll return to test cricket. The 88, sorry, make that the 98-99 series, when he gets back for that Sydney test to end the series, it's a really big deal. They play three spinners, McGill, Miller, Warm, and he gets those two stumpings in the first innings. And that is seen as like, it's it's thrilling because people don't actually know whether Warren will be able to mm. make a credible return of having his shoulder reconstructed. And I think we might have talked about that on the episode we made when Shane Warne passed away when we were in the stands at Karachi. But yeah, like yeah. age 28 for Warren is significant because, you know, he goes from being it, it's one of the, the quickest to 300 and he could go on to take a 1,000. Yeah. Then he plays, what, half of the test matches over the next three years. It's when the problems start to rack up. Like he gets yeah. to 300, the Australian record's only 355. Like yep. it's right there. It's Dennis Lilly. He's going to get that and then go on. And yeah, there's the shoulder that goes, then there's the finger that goes, there's the broken finger after that. And there are all of those comebacks, the... West Indies tour that's coming back for the World Cup. drops, nearly Um, retires. There's missing the next home summer with that broken finger. Then there's the, you know, and then a couple of years later, there's the other shoulder, then the drugs ban and all the rest. There are so many, there's more out than in for a long time. Well, yeah, that's right. So, I mean, it takes him until New Zealand in 2000 to break Lily's record, I'm pretty sure, Dan, looking over at you. Yeah, so it takes him from, you know, the January of 97 to the, what would have been the March of 2000 to take the next 56 wickets. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, kind of, it's an interesting phase in in the Warren story that, and yeah, he still goes on to take, you know, 700 plus wickets but you know the expectations Dan we were talking before that they they were measured about what might be possible then because of his body yeah so when he took 300 test wickets it was Terry Jenner saying he'll take 600 and a lot of people at the time were like 
No, he won't. No one takes 600. And at the time, the um, uh, I may be... I may be wrong about this, but the uh, the world test record was still in the 400s. So no one no one had gotten close to 600. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. So uh, yeah, so he's he's Can't reframing what's possible. But yes, he ends up with 700. Maybe it's a little bit less than he could have got had everything gone perfectly. Yeah, quite possibly. So yeah, that that is the bit where you know, and and you know, there's a great piece today on cricket.com.au by written by your colleague Louis Adam Burdett, who, who who's gone into a shield game, and I know we've all clicked on the link this morning because Jeff, they're exactly the kind of stories that we all uh-huh. want to read. He does a great job of that, Adam. Um, but you know, and where he builds up this one shield game with Warren's return before the 2001 India series, and I don't really remember it this way, but I'm willing to take it on face value that you know he was bowling for his spot in the Australian side because McGill had just dominated the home summer, taken mm. seven wickets at Sydney in the first innings, I'm pretty sure. Miller was Test took Player of the Year. Of Miller took 10 in Adelaide. Um, yeah, and, and was Test Player of the yeah. Year. You know, was obviously going to go on that tour. And Warren was coming back with, at this stage, another range of injuries. Could he come back to his best? I mean, there yep. was it was unclear. And, of course, he gets that golden run from the return from the drugs ban in, um, in 2004 and, and goes on to take, you know, another couple of hundred test wickets towards mm. the end of his career to, to end where he ends but yeah it's not as straightforward as like you know Warney rocks up dominates in England in 93 and keeps on dominating until 2007 there, there were twists and turns there were plenty through that period of time and yeah I just remember having this there was this ongoing anxiety of like is he is he going to get to do the thing that he's so good at doing is he are we are we going to see the best and, and when he bowled well at Mumbai that was part yeah. of it he actually made runs at Mumbai as well in the first test match remember my dad said to me um, at the time whenever Warney's hitting the ball well you watch him he'll go out and bowl the house down and he did in that first test at Mumbai mm. so yeah that, that that's sort of striking memories of his comeback and being well documented today I was at that Mumbai test and oh, I right. did lead the Warney Horny chance though. Like, Say again, sorry. No, you know how the Australians would go Warney. Yeah, yeah. So I and a group of my friends went Warney Horny. <laughs> so that's, that's my big takeaway from that Mumbai test. Oh, that's a big contribution there from a, from a respected member of the journalistic trade. I'm glad that we got that on the show. We've got one more number to come. Uh, thank you, James, for the 280. You can let us know if we didn't get the number exactly right, but I think we've done a, at least a decent job of we, we, as I said we're going to do a revisit special soon if you're getting quick with your you know your next clue and steer us in the right direction we'll try and mop that up next time the last one is mentioned him earlier in the show not that Tim mentioned hello the other Tim mentioned the pledge is $6 even the clue is just this Kerry nearly made it 7 uh, this goes back a little ways because this, this is best and fairest at North Melbourne the <laughs> for the duck who wants to... Uh, Alex Carey, I no, believe okay. we're talking about. Yep. Um, uh, probably, probably. Uh, I think I'd be confident More wholesome saying Kerry. a better person. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. No need to put a caveat around doesn't, that. A better person. Yeah, doesn't, doesn't put his anti-inflammatories in a small plastic bag. Um, that's, that's, that's all we know about Alex Carey. Did, did enjoy popping out of the dressing room with his shirt off a lot. He was doing a lot of Shane Watsons during the test match he here. He did, in, yeah, in yeah. Just, just, just popping in and out here or there. So... This pledge, I think, came in last year, sometime after Alex Carey made 93 in Karachi. Now, I was looking at, okay, is this to do with hundreds by an Australian wicketkeeper? It's not the number of hundreds made by one. It's not the number made by an Australian wicketkeeper in Pakistan or, or by Australians at Karachi or anything like that. But centuries by an Australian wicketkeeper since Adam Gilchrist finished up. Brad Haddon made four. Yep. Matthew Wade made two. Tim Payne made zero. Um, something that people still enjoy reminding him about uh, whenever possible. And when Kerry got out, we mentioned 
Mark Latham Dave earlier, his suggestion at the time was that Alex Carey was paying tribute to Tim Payne's highest score of 94, <laughs> like Mark Taylor with Bradman, <laughs> refusing to go past Tim Payne's 94 by getting himself out for 93 in Karachi. It's possible. You can't write these things off. Eventually, Carey decided to David Warner it and go past that mark in Melbourne um, at the last Boxing Day test, but that was after this pledge came in. And yes, he did come in with nearly 400 on the board, but the first over of the day, Travis Head and David Warner out in consecutive balls to Anrik Nokia, who's bowling 156 kilometres an hour. So it wasn't the easiest 100 to make. Played really well. The way he would take the ball off the top of a length and he was smacking it back down the ground, going through the covers, all of the tricks all of the range rather than just the sweeping that Alex Carey has done of late. He completed a great year. He averaged 52 in Test cricket last year, Alex Carey. Like, kind of underrated, excellent year for an Australian keeper. The fact that he didn't make 100 belied the fact that he made really important runs in Pakistan at both Karachi and Lahore. There was a brisk innings he played where he reverse swept his little heart out, little heart out rather in goal in the first innings of that, of that test where they were batting on a on a snake pit so yeah and made runs at other parts of the summer and uh, I'm, I'm trying to work out where, where are you pointing at me yeah you, pointing at the pool. Oh, of course the pool oh louis you're spot on so louis why don't you tell us this well his average since falling in the pool in was it karachi or lahore he fell in the pool in karachi is at the Moven pick at Karachi. Yeah, it's, it's through the roof. 60, 70, something like that. I think it, was, it might have even got to 80 after that mm. century. Of course, it's, it's fallen off in this series so far because he's missed out in India, so that average will drop. But th there was a time. Um, we, we went to Karachi. We stayed in the Moven pick, yep. and I tried to fall in the pool <laughs> in a, a desperate attempt to improve my average. <laughs> and uh, uh, it, Look, time will tell, because I have fallen in that pool quite deliberately. And I have, a, and I got my Woodstock gear. You too. <laughs> yeah, you and me both. Uh, and so far, that bat has not literally, has literally not hit a ball. It's played a couple of times, but the ball has not hit that bat. It's hit the stumps. I have fallen in the Moven Pick pool. Watch this fucking space, baby, because in 2023, I am going to be making the Jack Iverson of all comebacks. We're going to be playing games for the tabs together, and we're running half marathon for the tabs as well. We'll sign up uh, in the usual place. We should mention that on the way through. Yeah, we should. Um, well, look, if, if, if it comes to getting in a swimming pool, Frank Karuna-Ratna, big Frankie Runes, <laughs> he can tell you all about the benefits of getting in a swimming pool and what that does for a team. Uh, just look at Sri Lanka in the 2019 World Cup. So the point is this. The point is that it is significant that an Australian wicketkeeper has made 100 because it hasn't happened all that much. And at the point where he made the 93, he nearly made it seven since Gilchrist. Gilchrist made 17 of them as keeper. The entire total across the history of Australian Test cricket is 32. So Gilchrist has made more than half of the centuries made by Australian wicketkeepers. Aside from what is now seven centuries since Gilchrist finished up. The first was Marsh, that, wasn't it? Yeah, Ian Healy yeah. made four, Rod Marsh made three, yeah. and WB Phillips, yep. Flipper Phillips, made one. So that's it. That is, those are all of the centuries made by Australian wicketkeepers. It wasn't until December 1972 that the first one happened with Rod Marsh at Adelaide against Pakistan. And we should specify that it, it, it's, it's centuries made whilst designated keeper. So yes. Flipper made more than that, Matthew Wade made more than that, but when they were actually listed as the were, wicketkeeper. When they were the wicketkeeper in the match. Uh, and it is also and unbelievable that Gilchrist made 17 as the wicketkeeper because nobody else does that. People will think about Kumar Sangakkara. Uh, he made 39 test hundreds. He made seven of them as a wicketkeeper. Yep. AB de Villiers made a lot of test hundreds, made seven of them as a wicketkeeper. Alex Stewart, a lot of test hundreds, six of them as a wicketkeeper. Yep. In terms of full-time keepers, BJ Watling made seven. Matthew Pryor made seven. Les Ames, as Daniel Norcross says in my ear, made eight. And the next best behind Gilchrist... 
Andy Flower, who had to keep in all but eight of his many test matches because no one else knew how to do things in that team at that time, <laughs> averaging 51 in, in that team, he made 12 test centuries as wicketkeeper, all of them. So Gilchrist 17, the next best at 12, nobody else is in double figures. And after Gilchrist retired in 2008, there have only been seven made in the 15 years since. Rishabh Pant maybe was the one who could have challenged that. I wonder whether he'll come back to his best now, but he has five centuries and six times he's been out in the 90s. So if he'd been able to convert some of those and if he hadn't um, and I can see a world where he comes back as a specialist bat. KS Bratt's a bloody good keeper. So if they, in the past with Ritam and Saha, previously he was favoured ahead of Punt occasionally because of his wicket keeping skills in this part of the world. So you you couldn't completely rule out Punt making a shitload more hundreds, he will, I'm sure, but not as the designated keeper, yeah. even though his keeping has improved out of sight in, what, last two or three years? But with the injuries that he's got now, whether yes. he'll be able to keep effectively, I mean, I Brad's think shaking that's his pretty head, unlikely. You know? Yeah, it looks very unlikely at the moment. Uh, even if he'll come back any time before late next year to play yeah, right. cricket to start with, but with the knees, the number of things he's broken, I mean, we'll, he's lucky to survive. But yep. uh, keeping bending down and getting up uh, as often as a wicketkeeper has to do looks unlikely. But hey, spoke about KS Bharat, maybe Ishan Kishan comes in. He's a, it is the most like-for-like replacement for Rishabh. Mm. They grew up playing cricket together, were part of the same under-19 World Cup side for mm. India. So that's like Rishabh Pant, so who knows? I, I, I'm, totally, I'm totally fascinated by this topic because I'm thinking that of all the countries in the world, are England obsessed with their keepers making hundreds? And did it start with Les Ames? Because as you were going through all that, I was thinking, like Tim Ambrose, they picked, got a hundred, yep. hardly paid, but got a hundred. Matt Pryor, they picked him really for his batting. He got, I don't know how many, I don't know if you read that out. You seven. Seven, yeah, there you go. Joss Butler, Johnny Bairstow, Johnny Bairstow. Five. Five. Has England got the most number of keeper hundreds of anyone in the world? And not necessarily the, I mean, Alan Knott, for Christ's sake. I'm going to say it, yes, they do. Jack Russell <laughs> got four, I reckon. Yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Anyway, sorry, go on. I, I, you suddenly piqued my interest. I'm going to need to go and Google shit now. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that is the number, and I'm confident that answer is right for not that Tim mentioned. Uh, a couple of little confirmations that have come through as well. The $2.60 barat that we had that was, about, uh, that was about India's early test match with yeah. the player who was insulting uh, CK oh. Naidu, whose stand we were in this week. Whose statue we, we saw we were unveiled. We couldn't work out why it was $2.60. Uh, someone else has figured that out for us. It's because he was test cap 26 for India. Ah, and we thought it was because uh, India made 260 in the last game before the... <laughs> that, that was not it. And the Kim Garth number, if you remember from yep. last week, I can't believe I overlooked this. Because remember I said, Kim Garth, deb- I, I spuriously got 1470 out of the scorecard from mm, a debut mm. game. Which I, I was mean, pretty impressed by. I thought that... I, th- I thought it was yeah. good. It was definitely arsy, but it worked. But I said she was 14 years and a, just over a couple of months when she made her debut. I mean, I'd actually read the number and not even seen it. Oh. She was 14 years and 70 days when oh. she made her debut for Ireland. That's the 1470 for Dara. Very good. Now, World Cup winner, Kim Garth, since yes. we would have last recorded. She didn't play in the final, but she was part of the squad. So and, she gets a medal. And she's in the uh, women's IPL as well. She's got Which a, late, starts tonight. a late call up because DeAndra Dotton's out. So she's going in for Gujarat. There we should go. find a television to watch the inaugural right now, women's actually. IPL game that starts in a... I have no idea who's About playing. About 20 minutes. But we, yeah. we'll do that. Um, last but not least, the only person not to talk on this show has been our observer, Clemo. Clemo, have you enjoyed the experience? I absolutely have. Uh, I, I think we should talk to Breddick about how hard Mark Taylor tried to break Bradman's record in Pakistan in the last over. 
before he uh, courteously retired on 3.34 after talking to his sister, is it, Brady? Ejaz Ahmed. Yes, best fielding of Ejaz Ahmed's career. Mark Taylor flicking to mid-wicket and should for all the world have made the runs and probably finished 3.36 not out. But yes, Mark Taylor had conversations with a number of his family members, but I think ultimately it just came down to we've batted two days. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't think there was any way that he was going to bat for another day, but he definitely could have done it. It was all down to Ejaz. I think that's it. That's enough. Uh, this has been the final word. Story time, Adam. If you like what we do, patreon.com forward slash the final word. You can get yourself not only listed on story time where we do things like this, you can join the Discord page where meetups are happening all the time. There was one in London as recently as last Saturday, I'm pretty sure, mm-hmm. um, where um, there was a, a crew of our, our, our final nerds, as they call themselves, did their thing, and we met uh, a final nerd both here and in uh, last night, Hammy yep. was with you. And yep, and at the at the uh, the book launch as, as well. Um, Abby was there at the at Barrett's book launch in Brilliant. Mumbai. Um, Abby Ramanathan, who we've chatted yep. with a lot online over the years. So, yeah, we're running into people left, right and centre um, in this country and other countries all around the place. We'll be playing a lot of cricket through the summer as well. So if you want to, um, the English summer that is, so we'll be playing at least a couple of games. So stand by for that. And a reminder that if you want to be part of the half marathon on the 28th of May in Edinburgh for the Lord's Tabs, let me know. And if you want to run the London Marathon in April, we still got some spots left for the tabs, but you're going to have to get in touch with me very, very soon so I can pass that on. Final word cricket at gmail.com will find me in all the usual places. Storytime 125 from Indoor. This show was filmed in front of a live studio <laughs> audience. See you next time. Have a nice weekend. I had to go about-